are. So, yeah, it's a, a great privilege for me to be here today. I've known Jeff for a few years and really have come to respect him, and I know a little bit about your, your story here and his part in that, so it's just a great privilege. Somebody said we weren't going to have a very good turnout today, and I'm going, wow, this is like pretty darn good, I think. And uh, so I'm glad you're here. I hope you're glad that I'm here. Don't vote on that until we're done, you know, but, uh, but yeah, so I'm, um, I'm here to talk about Ephesians 4, about the mature church, and so I'm going to do a synopsis of the whole chapter, but I'm going to focus uh, primarily on one thing and then kind of make everything else flow from that. And so I've got like four or five points, and the first one is this, a growing church or you could say growing believers, never leaves the gospel behind. A growing church never leaves the gospel behind. So Ephesians 4 verse 1 begins like this. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Now, when you read Paul's letters, you got to know this about him, that whenever he says, therefore, you got to ask, you probably heard this line before, what's the therefore, therefore, Right? So he's saying, what I'm going to say next is based on everything that's gone before. So the first three chapters, he has basically presented the gospel. And he's saying, now I'm going to call you to do something, but it's all based on the gospel. It's planted in the soil of the gospel. Its roots have to go down into that soil of the gospel, and it grows out of the power of the gospel message. You cannot leave the gospel behind. So he's basically saying everything I'm going to ask you to do begins and ends with the gospel of salvation by God's grace through faith, not, not by works. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that I'm saying. That's what he says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the have been saved is a, um, it's, I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to the Bible, so I like to talk about what the Greek language says and means. And so in the Greek language, it's, it's a tense of the verb that, that means something like this. It means it's, a, it's an action that has been completed in the past, so it's done, but it has ongoing results into the present and on into the future. So you have been saved and are currently being saved by grace through faith. It's never anything else. It is never, ever anything else. So uh, you have been saved. You're being saved. Your salvation is incomplete, but it's not in question. Does that make sense? It's, com it's incomplete. There's still work that has to be done. I don't know about you, but in my life, there's still work that needs to be done. And I've been around Christ for like almost 50 years now. So, uh, and there's still stuff that, you know, aren't so good, ain't so good in God's eyes. So uh, when, we, when we believe and receive the gospel, God clinches it. Our place in eternity is settled forever. It's sealed with a golden seal. But then the process of becoming more like Jesus, which is what salvation is in the deepest sense. It's not just about going to heaven when we die. It's about being changed and changed and changed and changed for a whole life, for eternity, so that we become actually like Jesus. We actually live and think and breathe 
like him and love like him. That's the goal. And so um, it's by grace through faith. And all of this has to do, if you read Paul's letters, he talks a lot about being in something that uh, scholars call being in union with Christ. So this idea of grace and faith, it's not just a theological idea. It is that, but it's a reality. It's like almost a physical reality that you and I, when we put our trust in Christ and surrender to him, we become united with him like this in an inseparable union that I'd like to say is almost physical because it's something like this. When we surrender our lives to Jesus in faith, we are united with him through, by, for time and eternity, for time and eternity in a way that can't be separated. And, and forgive me while I turn my page. You know, I'm kind of old, so all my younger uh, compadres at, gener- at, at Encounter, they bring up their computer up here. And if I tried to do that, something would mess up and, you know, I'd be really lost. So, uh, so bear with me. But I like to say it's almost physical because it's not just an idea that we're united with Christ. We really are because when we receive Christ, we become indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are inseparably united forever. They were in eternity past, they are now, and they will be forever. So the Holy Spirit lives in you and me. If you're a believer, he lives in you. And that means that you are united with Jesus by his power and presence that's real. It's not just a fancy thought. It's a reality. So you can't be separated from Christ. So all of the benefits of salvation flow from that union with Jesus. You're justified. Your sins are totally pardoned. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. You are an adopted son or daughter of God. And you can never lose these things because they flow from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that unites you with Jesus. You died when he died, and you rose from death when he rose from death because you've been united with him before time began. Paul says that God chose us in him, in him, before the foundation of the world. Paul refers to that idea of being united with Christ 28 times that I counted just in the book of Ephesians alone. So it's a big deal for him. So understand that any maturity that you're ever going to see in your life is gospel-centered, gospel-rooted, and has to be gospel-oriented. And I say that because here's a common misconception. And people won't say this out loud, it's unspoken, but this is how people think. Over the years, as talking to people, this is how people tend to think. They think something like this. Okay, so I got into God's family by grace through faith. Now that I'm in, I have to work really hard and try really hard to be good. I'm glad a lot of you said no. Let's say no, that's not it. But that's the way we think a lot, because what happens when you fall short of the glory of God? What happens then? You feel condemned, right? You feel guilty. Well, there's a difference between guilt and conviction. We should feel convicted of it. We should feel sorry for it. But if, it, if that conviction doesn't drive you toward God, it's not from God. It's either coming from your own mind or the devil or both, right? So, so we, we get in by grace, and we can only stay in by grace, and we can only become mature if our lives are, are solidly rooted and solidly grounded on a foundation of grace 
alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. If, if that's not where your maturity is coming from, you and I are going to be frustrated because we'll never be able to live up to the mark in terms of what good things we're able to do. They will never measure up to what God demands. And we'll become judgmental and harsh because we'll be constantly whacking other people down to our level to make ourselves feel better. You understand what I'm saying? Unless, unless my life is breathing and inhaling and exhaling grace from start to finish, I'm going to be a graceless person and an ingracious person to other people. And so we get in by grace, we stay in by grace. There will never, ever be a time when you and I will be able to live in relationship to God on any other basis than grace that we receive by faith. It's always grace, always, always, always. There will never be a time when we'll be able to earn God's love or favor or merit it on the basis of the good things that we do. There will never be a time. So if you don't remember anything else from what I say today, remember that. You go out of here and saying it's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for time and eternity. It will always be that. Jesus said, so Jesus, was, he, he, he fed, you know, the 5,000 and later on the 4,000. In John's gospel, after he fed the 5,000, he left the mountainside. He went back onto the other side of the lake into Jewish territory again. And, and uh, people followed him there. And, uh, and he said, you know, you're just coming because you filled your belly. I urge you to work for the, you know, don't work for the things that, that perish, but work for the things that lead to eternity. And he said, well, what are those? What should we do so that we could be doing the work of God? And they were asking this question. What is the most important good work that we can do in, in God's name to, have, to know that we're going to have eternal life? What is it? And this is what Jesus said. John 6, verse 29. This is the work of God. What did he say next? Anybody know? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he hath sent. The most important thing you and I can ever do if we want to become mature Christians is to believe in Jesus, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is, you know, maturity in person. He is the kind of person we want to become, and we won't become that unless we're just planted in the soil of grace and built on that foundation, and every brick of our spiritual house, so to speak, comes from God's grace. It has to be grace through and through, through and through, inside out, upside down. Made my point? Got it? Okay, so everything depends on that. So having said that, he goes on to say, uh, Paul, that growing believers are united. They are united in, in a couple of ways. So verses uh, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk according to the gospel with all humility and gentleness, with patience, which is really long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so I'm not contradicting what I've said already, but it is true. We do have to strive really, really hard to be good. 
because our default mode is to not be good. That's our default mode. So we do have to try really hard, but we, we need to always remember exactly what trying hard means in a Christian context. And I'll give you an example. Years ago, this is before I crossed the line of faith and gave my life to Christ. And, uh, I mean, I'd, been, I'd just gotten out of jail, and uh, my girlfriend had just broken up with me, and, like, I was kind of tanking it in the toilet, you might say. And, and, uh, and I just said, you know, Dave, you gotta, something's got to change here. You can't go on living like this forever. And so, I'm not kidding you, I did this one night, late at night. I made a vow to myself, and I said, from, from now on, I'm just going to be a good person. I mean, I had no definition of what that meant. It just kind of meant, you know, being nice to people. I, that's, and and I, I'm not, I was serious about it. And it wasn't two days later, and I had to say, I'm tanking on that, too. I can't even do that, right? Can't even be nice to people. And uh, so I realized that that this unity of the Spirit, it, 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 it comes when, number one, we, we express to each other the character traits of Jesus, right? And so this is what it means to be good. You be humble. We know that we are not self-made people. That's what humility means. I'm not who I am because I'm such a great person. I am who I am. I am because God made me. And he saved me. And that's, that's humility. And that, that that's, makes it possible for me to treat other people with grace. Because the same thing is true. They can't be self-made either. They need God. The God's made them. They need Jesus to save them. And when I get that into my head, then I can treat them like God would have me treat them. I'm gentle. And it's hard to define what gentle is, but you know what it's not, Right? Buck up, man. Be good. Do good things in Jesus' name. How gentle is that? You know what gentle sounds like and what it looks like. So gentleness, long-suffering, patience. There are two words for patience in the Bible. One means just having endurance like a marathoner. The other one means to be slow to anger with people. That we go a long ways with people before we let our anger express, be expressed to them. Because why? Well, we're humble. We know that they're fallen and broken just like we are. So we're able to put up with a lot before we get exasperated. We might even feel exasperated, but we work hard not to express it to people, but to be kind and gracious instead. Loving and accepting imperfect, sinful people. We're loving. We accept them, not what they do, but who they are. There are people who are made in Christ's image, and there are people for whom Jesus died. And that puts a mark of value on every human being I meet. See, when I said I'm just going to be good to people, I, I didn't have any of that in my head. But understand all this. Again, we do need to try really hard to do this. But all these traits that I've just described are what Paul calls, he says, strive really hard to keep the unity of the Spirit. They are traits that the Holy Spirit creates in our lives as we surrender to him. We sang about, you know, surrendering to him. And that's a constant thing that we need to do. We, 
We preserve the unity that the Holy Spirit has already created. We are one in Christ. We, if you are a follower of Jesus, if all of us are here, regardless of your age or ethnicity or social status or educational level or whatever your income might be, we are united with Jesus, the risen Jesus, who is Lord over everything as we sang. His kingdom come. It has come. And so it's a unity that the Spirit created uh, by saving us, and he maintains it through us. And so our constant prayer, uh, this doesn't come out until chapter 5, but chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. That leads to you know, immorality. Debauchery means total immorality and total moral license where you have no moral boundaries at all. That's what alcohol leads to. But then it's the weirdest thing because in the next sentence he says, be filled with the Spirit instead. So we're talking, you know, there's a reason they call alcohol spirits. It makes you do stuff, right? It makes you do stuff that you're ashamed of the next day, right? At least you should be if you're not. But the Holy Spirit also doesn't make you st do stuff, but he empowers you to do stuff. He changes your mind and the way it works and the way your heart works and what motivates you in a good way, just the opposite of what alcohol does. It's powerful. He's powerful. So our constant prayer should be to surrender to him. Paul, the last half of chapter 3 was all about Paul's prayer for the Ephesians that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and, get this, be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says, and, and that's enough, but you'd think, but then he says, and now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we could ask or even imagine... We haven't plumbed the depth yet of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I was blessed when Marcia started praying before the service started and she was praying for the Spirit, just started breaking down. That, I, that happens to me all the time because the Holy Spirit is real and he just takes over if you let him. And it's an awesome thing. Then these things like humility and long-suffering and love, they just start to flow. So anyway... Um, so we do need to strive with zeal, uh, but understand that it's something the Holy Spirit has already created for us. We just need to receive it by faith. Again, Jesus said, here's the most important thing you can do. Believe in the one whom he has sent. Believe. All right, so growing believers are united by love of the truth. And I'm just going to stop here for a second because it comes up again later in the next few verses. But, but in verses 4 to 6, we have like a, what I call a prototype of the Apostles' Creed, you might say. So listen carefully what it says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called with one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. This creed is, is kind of backwards according to the Apostles' Creed, and here's the reason why. It's, it's a powerful reason. Because most of the people in the Ephesian church were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. They had little understanding of the God of the Bible. And the way they encountered him first... The way they encountered him first was in the church of Jesus Christ on earth. 
So it begins with the body. That's how their faith began. They encountered people who were actually living like Jesus. And because of that, they were moved to give him further consideration. So as they got connected with church, the next person they met is the Holy Spirit. So there is one body and one spirit, as you were called with one hope of your calling. Well, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Jesus said, because they don't believe in me. So they encountered the Holy Spirit, and then they came to know Jesus as the Lord over everything, and then through him, they come to know the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, you know, we flip it around. Actually, they got it right. That's how most of us came to Christ. That's how I came to Christ is kind of with that progression. So, so they're united in doctrine, and I say that, and I'll move on quickly and come back to it, because the importance of, of sound doctrine is often minimized today, even in churches that call themselves churches of Jesus Christ. Doctrine is sometimes downplayed as being less important, you know, than living like Jesus. The truth is, you cannot live like Jesus unless you have the true teaching about who he is. And I'll, I'll get back to that later. So, my third point is this, verses 11 to 12. Of chapter 4 maturity is growing up into Jesus in other words growing up to be like Jesus and that to me when I first heard that and understood what that meant it just sounded like an impossible goal but uh, even in my life over the years and I mean there's still there's still a long reach to go but a lot has happened that it the the guy who said, I'm just going to be good, is a lot more like Jesus now than he was at that point, and still growing. So this is what Paul says. Jesus gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So he's given you, Pastor Jeff, and elders and other leaders in this church uh, their purpose is to help all of you as individuals, but all of you together as the body to grow up to be like Jesus, to build you up so that you actually become like him individually and corporately. And, you know, there's a, a, there's a lot of criticism leveled against the church in American society today. Some of it's justified, a lot of it's not. But the call is to be like Jesus as individuals, but also as a corporate body. And I'll give you two examples from my own life. I used to work with a guy named Joe. And uh, a guy that got me the job said, you have to watch out for Joe because he's a Jesus freak. And he's going to be preaching at you the whole day. Well, I grew up in church. I'd walked away from him. I grew up there and said, oh, I can handle a few sermons. I've listened to a bunch of them. And I was surprised because he didn't preach at me. He was just a good guy, treated me, you know, with respect, taught me how I, what I needed to know to be able to work and do my job right. And uh, I was starting to read the Bible, so whenever I had questions, he's answering me. So one day, Joe and I are, I don't know what happened, but we're just literally, you know, like this, face to face, yelling at each other at the top of our lungs. And it, it had to be my fault because Joe was just a gracious guy. So, And I don't remember the details, and that's probably a good thing. But anyway... I remember just walking away from him and said, I've had it with you, man. And I walked away, and I, just, I felt guilty. And, I, and this thought came to my mind and said, you really should apologize to Joe. And immediately, nah, 
blew that off. Right, I'm not going to do it. Well, so we get, to, we get to the end of the day. It's time to clock out, and there's Joe, and I'm trying to avoid him. He said, Dave, uh, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. I, I was looking at the ground because I thought he was going to scold me, you know, and tell me how wrong I was. And he said, I shouldn't have treated you the way I did, and I shouldn't have said what I said to you. And then he said this. He said, will you forgive me? And I tell you, I, I had never heard anybody ever speak those words to anybody in my whole life before. And it was like a, you know, people talk about having a come to Jesus moment. I had a lot of Jesus come to me moments. And that was one of them where I just thought, whatever else you say about Christianity, I could not deny the power of that. I mean, that was overwhelming. And then uh, I remember uh, getting out of jail, and uh, my, my, I was still living with, I was pretty young in my early 20s and still living with my home folks I had no money. And so I said, if you're going to live here, they said you're going to come to church with us on Sunday. I said, I'll drag myself to church. And I get to the door, and standing at the door is my uncle. And I'm going, oh, gosh, did it have to be him? And I'm just, oh, gosh. And, He's just going to make me feel guilty and all that. And I, but he, he, I'm not kidding you, he embraced me literally with open arms. And he said, Davis, good to see you today. And those two things, I mean, there were other things that God did to bring me to Jesus. But to see Joe as an individual and then to see the church welcome me like that when they all knew my, because my mom said, Dave, you know, we're not going to hide this from anybody. We're going to tell everybody exactly what happened. So I'm going, oh, great. You know, they're going to, here comes the, you know, the jail bait to church. And, but they treated me like I was a saint. And that's part of what won me. And so the purpose of, of our leaders is to help us to be like Jesus as individuals, but also as a corporate body. And just one more time, I experienced this. Uh, I was the pastor at what used to be Bethel Reformed Church. I was a youth pastor there for 10, and then the pastor for 10, and then I was away for about 20, and came back, and they welcomed me back like I'd never been gone. And so now I'm back at the church where I used to be the pastor, helping the pastor as best I can, and it's just been an awesome ride, if you know what I mean. But, but that's what God wants. He wants the church. Paul says about the church in chapter 1, he says the church is his body, this is the NIV, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church is the place where people encounter Jesus today. It's impossible for me to overemphasize how important you all are, all of you together, and the witness that you have in this community. And so understand that. You are the physical presence of Jesus in the world today. And if people want to get to know him, they're going to have to get to know him usually almost always through a local church like this one. And so, God, you can be like Jesus. I tell you those stories to say you can be that. You can be that. You probably already are. And then, so, growing up uh, in verse 13, he says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And as I've said, that just simply means to be everything Jesus is. 
to be humble and loving and gentle and forbearing and long-suffering. Jesus put up with those apostles when they said and did the stupidest things that you could imagine anybody could do in the presence of the Son of God. And he still loved them and kept curry. He chewed them out a couple times, but they had it coming. And somehow they knew that even though he was scolding them, which was rare, he, they still knew that he was on their side and that he was for them. He is for you. So growing up into Jesus means two things at least, more than that, but these two, verses 14 to 15. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ. So we're growing up into Jesus. We're already in Jesus, right? But growing up into him means that, that while we live here on this earth, in flesh and blood, the thing that people see is going to resemble Jesus more and more as time goes by if we keep believing and keep surrendering to the Holy Spirit and keep our love for the truth. I mentioned earlier that doctrinal truth matters. It matters a lot. It has to be. It's not enough. Don't get me wrong. You've got to have more than that. You've got to have more than a knowledge of what's true about Jesus but if you don't have what's true about Jesus in your heart, then you will miss the gospel. And everybody will miss the gospel. It's impossible to overemphasize the importance of doctrinal truth. So let me give you an example. I have found in my experience as a pastor that any time people deny that Jesus is God in a human body, whenever they deny that, they can never be certain of their salvation ever. They never are. You talk to the JWs, you talk to the Mormons, you talk to the Church of Christ. I don't care who it is. If they don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, they don't know that they're saved. And they can't know because everything depends on how good they can be. So, um, they trust their own good, and all, they're always uncertain and they'll tell you. I've had Mormon missionaries tell me, well, I'm, are you certain of your eternal salvation? No, I'm not certain. Why not? Well, I have to keep all the ordinances and all the... And that's how it always goes. So there has to be doctrinal truth, but truth, when Paul talks about it, has to do with more than knowing about Jesus. It means knowing Jesus the person. Knowing Jesus the person. And uh, this means uh, knowing his love and presence and power. And again, all that comes through the Holy Spirit. So we're about, we're about truth. We're people who speak the truth and live the truth, but we're also people who have received Jesus' love and then give Jesus' love at the same time. So while truth is indispensable for salvation and maturity, it's not enough. Because I can know a lot about Jesus. And I had a phase in my Christian life, and uh, I was talking to Lucky earlier, and he's talking about how he came to Christ and just gobbled up the Bible and you know, got every biblical help you could. And I did all that, but I wasn't a very loving person. And I was saved, but I just didn't, hadn't learned how to love people. 
And so we're speaking the truth in love. And listen to what John says about Jesus. He says this, And the Word, just John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, listen to this, full of grace and truth in equal measure, equal measure. Pastor Mike is the pastor of Encounter now, where I am, and he likes to say truth without love or grace is brutality. And I've added my quip to that, and love without truth is spineless sentimentality. So you've got to have both. We've got to be people who believe what's true and who love people like Jesus loved. We've got to have both of those. And again, the only way that can happen in your life and mine is if the Holy Spirit is flowing through our life and breathing the life of Jesus into our lungs, into our heart, into our soul. Okay, so I'm almost finished. Here's, here's the next part. Growing believers, the growing churches know they can't change themselves. That was my problem. Well, I'm just, Dave, I'm just, you just have to be good. You just have to be a good person. And I assumed that I could, that I had the power to make myself a good person. And it didn't work. Listen to what Paul says. This, this is verse 17 to 19. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Futility means to be totally empty and devoid of power. Their minds didn't have what it, take, what it took to make them good people. They were empty. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart, their hardness of heart. They have become callous, and give themselves up to sensuality, and they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It is impossible to escape the darkness, to escape the power of this present darkness on the basis or by the power of the human will alone. It is impossible. There's a reason that Paul says in chapter 2 again, verses 4 to 5, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive again, there's the idea again, with Christ. He actually breathed the resurrection power of Jesus into our soul, and now where we were non-responsive before, we're responsive to God now. Now before, we didn't care what God wanted, now we care. Before, we didn't even try to please God. Now, at least we want to, and we do try. And Jesus gives us that power. And we are people that God has brought to life. Union with Christ makes us responsive to God. Union with Christ gives us the desire to live for God. So growing believers know that they are created in Christ Jesus. When Paul said, is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one boasts. Everybody quotes that verse, and then they forget the next one. For we are God's handiwork, listen to this, created, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a new creation. And this is spectacular. Listen to what Revelation says. I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any. See, there's going to be a, either a restoration or a recreation of the whole universe when Jesus comes. But Paul says that that creation has already begun in you and me. It's already here. The new creation that's coming that's going to change the world has already started, and that's in you. And it's only when we live by the fuel and the fire of the new creation that we are that we can be the kind of people that God wants us to be. And so he said, now, understanding, um, this is how you learn Christ. It's interesting. He doesn't say this is how you learn about Jesus. He says, this is how you learned Jesus. See, it's all about the real person of Jesus alive resurrected and living in you and me by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and lives in me right now. So he says, this is not how you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him. There's that idea again, as the truth is in Jesus. So when we learned about Jesus, we're not just learning about a historical figure that lived sometime way back in the past. We're leaving about a person who's alive and in whom the whole fullness of God's majesty and power is focused under a magnifying glass and still lives in his physical body. And that same power lives in your body and my body by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? We are God's home now. That's who we are. And it's because of that that we can do what he says in verses 22 to 24. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self. Here's that word again, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there is a decision that we have to make to walk a line. When you cross the line, you got to walk the line. I'm getting into Johnny Cash mode now, so I warn you about that. When I was a kid, my dad was a stone-cold Johnny Cash fan, and I couldn't stand the guy. The guy can't carry a tune. How can anybody see? And then I saw him in person once. Oh, my gosh. You know, well, that's another story. But anyway, um, but it reminded me of that song. So we live by believing, and because we believe the creative and resurrecting power of God lives inside us, because it does, we draw on the fire of that power, we can reject the old way of life. And sometimes we have to do that million, not a million, but a lot of times in the same day, right? Because almost every encounter with somebody is a chance to either live like the old person or the new person. And we do have to make that choice, and we can make it, because God is in there. The power that birthed us is still active in our lives, changing us, flowing, like Jesus said, like, like, a, like a, a living water within. And so I, I got to slip into Johnny Cash mode, because I went to see the movie, and I saw him perform in person. He had this song, Walk the Line, right? And if you know his story, he was a drug addict and, and jailbird, and then he met June Carter Cash, and he, she and her family brought him to God and faith in Jesus. And then he wrote this song called Walk the Line. I don't know if I should do this or not, but I'm going to try it. 
I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds, because you're mine. I walk the line. So why do I sing that song? My wife would be really mad at me if she was here and I did that. But, um, but what happened, of course, he met Jesus. That was part of it. What he's saying is, you know, I, I never was motivated to live like this before, but I'd love came into my life. And the power of that, now I'm ready to put my life on the line for you. And he did it for a woman, but more than that, even for Jesus. And that's how it is with you and me. Even, even before when I thought I wanted to be good, I couldn't do it. But when Jesus' love came into my life, it was like a whole new reality, a new dimension coming in. And now I, it, I had a desire to do it that comes from in here, not something I have to cook up and dream up. So finally, final point, uh, growing believers live by God's creative power. They, they, they rely on the power of the Holy Spirit they surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. They believe the power of the Holy Spirit is active in them. They never leave the gospel behind. It's always by grace through faith. They live and breathe that. And so they can be honest and authentic in their relationships, 425. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And that doesn't mean just don't lie. It means don't be fake. Don't try to pretend to be someone you're not. Be real. Be real. One of the biggest compliments everybody ever paid me was a young guy. I'd been a Christian for quite a while, and he said, Wow, man, I've met a lot of pastors, but you just seem real. And he wasn't even a believer, but I just thought, Wow, thank you, man. I really I hear that. I, I'm glad you see that. That's not me. I'm like, you know, so that's, that's Jesus. Anyway, so be real. They express anger in a godly way. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's not sinful to be angry, but when we crush and hurt people with our anger, that's wrong. They're givers, not takers. Let the thief no longer steal, verse 28, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he can have something that to share with anyone in need. So they're givers, not takers. Verse 29, if they can't say something good, they don't, say, they don't speak. My mom used to say, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. And I used to think, gosh, that's really gay. I mean, I can't say that word out loud, but that's really <laughs> dumb. I'm sorry, I really am, because I, I, I have a lot of friends who you know uh, belong to that community, and so I, I don't want to disrespect them. But, but I used to think, that's really stupid. And then I read this verse in the Bible. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only what serves to give grace to those who listen as fits the occasion. So basically, what my mom said, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Makes sense. And they, they live to please the indwelling spirit. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, grieving the spirit doesn't mean he's going to reject you, but... Uh, and I don't know how, how the Spirit grieves, but I, I, it just affects God when we act dishonestly or maliciously or hatefully or so on. And then finally, they refuse to be haters. 
Um, Paul says, uh, let all, I'm going to have to read this one. I used to have it memorized, but be kind to one. Uh, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then chapter 5, 1 and 2, he says, be imitators of God. That's, that's basically maturity. So don't leave the gospel behind. Be united in the fruit of the Spirit. Be united in your call to be like Jesus. Right? Um, and understand that you can't do it under your own power. You have to be a recreation and then live out of the power of that creation. All right, well, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. I'm going to conclude with a prayer and invite the worship leaders to come back, and we'll conclude our service. But uh, it's been a blessing for me. I hope it has been for you. Shall we pray together? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, our God in heaven, we thank you that you are good and that you're always doing good. You're always doing something good, as Jesus said. And we thank you that the good work that you are doing is also focused in us as individuals, but also communally as a church, that you want us to become, basically maturity is a simple idea, just not easy, that we would become like Jesus. And so I thank you for this community of believers. I pray that you'll be with their leaders and be with them. I pray that your power will be focused on them and that you'll be constantly regenerating and generating the new creation that you've begun. We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.